If you would take out the Word of God and turn to uh, the letter of Titus, we continue this sermon series, Gospel, uh, the Gospel Planet Church, and uh, I will say that Dan takes the uh, Bieber fill away with that beard. <laughs> Doesn't look quite as much like Justin Bieber's clay. Uh, we are thankful to have such gifted men that uh, lead our campuses in worship. If you think about Pastor Nate Bevere uh, and Clay and Dan, we are um, spoiled in a lot of ways in our music at all three campuses. Um, I was driving to church this morning and realized that I didn't have my contacts in, so uh, if you are uh, a policeman, please don't give me a ticket. Uh, I'll get my wife maybe to drive me home. We might do that. Um, but uh, if you are standing within four feet of me, I know who you are. Beyond that, I have no clue who else is here. So it's a good day to miss church. Uh, and some of you are wondering, uh, why is he not talking to me? I, I cannot see uh, beyond four foot in front of my uh, face And I think it's appropriate because the passage this week um, has uh, been very pointedly directed at me, at my life, at my ministry, and has really just uh, punched me in the gut. And I've had to primarily preach this passage to myself over and over again this week. And uh, I'm thankful to be here to share uh, this passage of Scripture with you today. If you would stand in reverence to the reading of God's perfect Word as we look at Titus chapter 1. We'll begin in verse 5 and we will read uh, through verse 16 today and we will look at this section of Scripture together. Uh, the Apostle Paul, uh, by the power of the Holy Spirit, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, penned these words to uh, his son in the faith, Titus, who was left in Crete to establish churches there. And we stand today with, with this letter in our hands to become a church established by the Word of God. And so we hear the Word of Christ in these moments. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained in order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, as God's servant, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine, and also to rebuke those who contradict it. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced, since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain 
what they ought not teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their mind and their conscience are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny Him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for any good work. Oh God, we pray today that we would hear Your Word, that that the Gospel would be our greatest treasure, that we would cling to it, that we would hold tightly to it, that it would be firmly within our grasp because it is our only hope in life, in our family, standing before you. The Gospel is our only hope in ministry, in our church, in the world, in the culture. The Gospel is our only hope. God, we don't want to come in here and and put... um, some sort of veneer on the sinfulness of our own hearts. God, we want to be exposed so that we can look to Christ and be rescued and be saved and be transformed for His glory. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Many of you have heard the story of the first sermon that I've ever preached, and I'll never forget it. It was... Uh, During a time in my life, God was uh, changing the desires of my heart, what I was going to do with my life, and um, God called me into the ministry, and I went in to meet with the pastor of our church who was a mentor to me at the time, Um, and I told him, I think God is calling me into the ministry to be a pastor, and I thought he was going to counsel me through that, and that's good. We'll pray for you, see how that works out. And he said to me, well, we'll, we'll find out. And he said, we'll find out next Wednesday night, because you're preaching next Wednesday night. And I said, no, I'm not. And he said, well, if you're called to preach the Word of God, we're going to find out if you can do it next Wednesday. Now, I don't suggest... Uh, handling men who are called in the gospel that way. But that's what he did for me. And the next Wednesday night, I preached through the Beatitudes uh, in Matthew chapter 5. And I went through every Beatitude in five minutes. <laughs> and I got to the end and just looked up and, well, we're, we're done. After five minutes and everyone got to go home early that night. Fast forward a a year or so later, um, I'd been attending Bible college for a year and I'd been learning things that I didn't even know were in the Bible, learning things about church and ministry that were blowing my mind and and, and I I became somewhat prideful about those things. And I'd gotten into arguments with leaders in in my home church, in the same church where this man was a pastor and... uh, and gotten into some conflict there, even with family members, about uh, the way the church looks and the way the church acts. And, and this pastor set up a meeting with me and very forcefully rebuked me and called me a punk. And after the meeting was over, uh, he literally grabbed me 
and shoved me against the wall and said, this better never happen again. Now, a lot of guys would have ran from that, and I wanted to, and I, it scared me to death, uh, but it changed the way I thought about ministry. It changed the way I thought about the church. I remember in that moment beginning to think, yeah, I, I am being a punk, and to do this, I, I, I've got to be humble for folks to follow me. I've got to lead in a way that, that is not so arrogant. And then fast forward a couple of years later, the first time I met Pastor David Prince, who I've been in ministry with almost 20 years now. Uh, at that time, I was serving in a Presbyterian church, although I claimed to be uh, a Baptist, very much so. But I was at this church because I had an opportunity to serve, and I was teaching the youth and leading the youth there, and I was willing to sort of check my Baptistic convictions at the door to be able to do that. And uh, Dr. Albert Moeller was preaching at the church where da Pastor David was the pastor. And maybe you know Wayne Cole. He invited me to join him there for this conference. And, and looking back, I know now that Wayne was setting me up for something. Uh, because the first conversation that I ever had with David Prince, he called me into his office and it wasn't, hey, how are you doing? Nice to see you. He sat me down in his seat and said, are you at a Presbyterian church? I said, yes, sir. And you claim to be a Baptist? Yes, sir. You're not a Baptist. You're a pragmatist. And he laid into me for uh, denying my convictions and not having, uh, not, not being committed to my baptism, uh, baptistic convictions for about 15 minutes. And, and I didn't say a word. I sat in the seat thinking, who is this jerk? Who is this guy telling me? I just met him. What in the world is going on? And as I left his office that day saying, I'm probably never going to talk to this guy again, I realized I needed that. That was God's grace in my life. And encounters like this, to be honest with you, have happened for 20 years over and over again in my life as a pastor. And Pastoral ministry means your life, your convictions, what you preach, what you teach, who you are as a pastor, as a family, as an individual in the community is always on display and is always to be ready for a sharp rebuke. And it's exactly what this passage has done to me this week. It has been another one of those punch in the guts that, that you've got to be ready. You've got to be willing to receive such rebuke and correction, not just from other men who are gifts of God in your life, not just from the church who, that's a gift of God in your life, but from God himself in the very word of God. And if you are a man called into the ministry and you read these sections of scripture, that's exactly what happens. It's a punch in the gut. Notice Verse 5, as Paul writes to Timothy, he says, This is why I left you in Crete, that you may put 
uh, what remained in order. Remember, Crete is this small island where Paul had preached the gospel. Paul had gone across this island delivering the good news and, and groups of believers began to form. People began to believe the gospel and in all of these towns throughout Crete they were gathering together in light of the gospel. And now Paul writes to Titus and says, what I want you to do in Crete as these groups of believers are forming, I want you to straighten them out, give them structure so that they can be churches. As we move through this letter, I think it's important to have a definition for what a church is. A church is a, is a gathering of people who display the authority of Jesus by living under the authority of the kingdom. And they declare the power of Jesus as they proclaim the good news of the kingdom to the nations. And corporately, they celebrate the ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper. They practice church discipline and they recognize the two offices of pastor and deacon. It's not just a group of people gathering together for Bible study. They are on mission together. They are bound together by their mission. They celebrate the ordinances. They hold one another accountable. They practice church discipline. And they establish leaders in their midst. And the two offices that are given to the church in the New Testament are pastor and deacon. They are offices. And so Titus is left in Crete to go around to these groups of believers and establish structure. The word here, to straighten out, it, uh, we, for part of that word, we get the word orthodontist, ortho. It means to straighten out what's crooked. And here he is to go into these groups of believers, into these communities of faith, and he is to give them structure so that they are straightened out as they become churches. Notice what they're to do, what he is to do, he is to appoint elders in every town as I directed you. Elders, the, the word elder here, it is used interchangeably in the New Testament. Elder, overseer, pastor. And most often it is used in the plural form. In churches, you are to have a team of pastors who work together in shepherding the people of God with the word of God. And notice here, Titus is to appoint them. He is to set them apart in every town. He is to recognize God's call on their life and their quality of character. Now notice here that pastors don't appoint themselves. In the New Testament, the apostles appointed pastors. They recognized that the Holy Spirit was calling men out to preach and shepherd the flock of God with the Word of God. And the apostles looked and they saw it. But later on we see it as a church that is affirming this. The church says, yes, that man is called as a pastor, as an elder, as an overseer. He is called out in that way. We see God's calling on his life. And so you don't appoint yourself. And I say this all the time to young men who are called to the ministry. They say, I'm called to the ministry. And I say, okay, like my pastor said, we'll find out. I'm not going to let you preach next Sunday, but we'll find out. The church will look upon your life and say, are you called or are you not? Do you have the gift? Do you have the anointing of the Spirit to lead in that way? 
Now, what does this look like? Notice verse 6. If anyone is above reproach, that means if he is without accusation, there's no reason to call him into account, to bring a charge against him for his character, not personality, not he's just different than me, but his character in the church and in the community. And I always say this to young guys too. Your goal in ministry is to be above the accusation of your greatest critic. See, I get a lot of guys that say, but those people are crazy. Yeah, and you have to be above any accusation that they would charge you with too. But they're crazy. Yeah. You can't give them any reason to charge you. There can't be any evidence. I'll never forget, I was counseling a young man who was leaving his wife and we were involved in a, in a counseling session and he just continued to grow angry with me, what I was telling him to do, uh, confronting him of sin, rebuking him in certain ways, being very, very calm. And I'll never forget the scariest words anyone has ever spoken to me in ministry. He stood up and he looked me in the eyes and said, I'm going to ruin your ministry. I'm going to ruin your ministry. And at that moment, I was wishing I had had someone else in the room. He said, I'm going to post things on social media. I, and his words in a text after he left was, I'm about to take you down. And I realized in that moment, there can't be anything there to take me down. There can't be any charge there, like it or not. There can't be any accusation there. And I'm remembering just the sweat that went down my back in those moments and thinking of the gravity of what it means to be above reproach without charge. Now, this is a description of his overall character. There are going to be times where, where you don't like what he says, you don't like what he does, and he is a sinner. But his overall character is that he is above reproach, and this qualification hangs over, as we see in the text, his family, his personal life, and his teaching. Notice he is to be the husband of one wife. Now that's not the number of wives that he has had or has. He's not, it's not, not how many times he's been married or if he's a polygamist. And you, you, you may laugh about that, but on the mission field, that is a question all the time. You have men who have been saved by the gospel and they at the moment have multiple wives. Now, the, the qualification here is much higher than even those things. It's much higher than that. It's not the number of wives. It's the, it is that he models marriage commitment in his covenant to his wife that reflects Christ's love for the church. You're to ask of your pastor at all times, is there a hint of unfaithfulness in his life? Does he love his wife more than anything else? Does he love her more than anything else, any other person, his kids, anyone else in his life, any other thing in his life? And it means this, he has to love his wife more than he loves his ministry. I serve this church by loving my wife more than you. I serve this church by loving my wife more than I love the task at hand. I love this church by loving her more than anything else. There are a lot of guys who they've, they've never been divorced. 
They don't have multiple wives, but they fail to meet this qualification because they love ministry more than their wife. They love ministry more than their family. And it is up to the church to see that that relationship is primary. It is up to the church to make sure their pastor's marriage is good and it's healthy. You should ask me questions about my marriage. You should look in on my marriage and make sure that I'm being faithful to my wife, that I love her more than anything. That is your responsibility because if you don't do that, one day it's very possible with the stress of ministry and the life and uh, the stress of life and burdens that we both end up embarrassed about my marriage. No, he is to be the husband of one wife, which literally means a one-woman man committed to her First and foremost, and the text continues, and his children are believers. The word, the word here is actually faithful, and it means they are faithful to their parents' instructions. Now, you have to remember, this is a brand new church in Crete, and he is appointing pastors to shepherd that church. The gospel has to be evident in their family. Now, you can't guarantee that every pastor's kid is going to come to faith in Christ. The Holy Spirit does that. My kids will be saved by the gospel of Jesus Christ, the power of the Holy Spirit, not my career. And that's the way I want it. But you do have to look in on the pastor's family. Notice they're not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. These words together just mean they're not riotous. They're not wild. They have self-control. They have submission. They submit to authority. Now we look in on all of our kids' life. We look in on the pastor's kids' life and we see different seasons. You don't look in and go, well, they're, they're not living up to the standard right now, so you better resign. No, there is a pattern. There are seasons. And on the whole, you look in at his family and you ask the question, is he above reproach in leading his family to Christ? And why is that? You get a window into my heart what I want for this church by seeing what I want for my family. Do I want them to believe the gospel of Jesus Christ more than anything? Is the gospel my greatest treasure? Then I'm going to be giving it to my wife and my kids. It's going to be the center of our relationship. You want a pastor where the gospel is the center of his life. So it is the center of his family. Now, I don't bemoan this. I know a lot of pastors' families get to this point and this is unfair. We're held to a different standard. Yes, we are. And as I read this this week, and I'm convicted and scared to death, I go, this is God's grace in my life. This is a gift. I want to love my wife as Christ loved the church. And I want 300 people making sure that I'm doing that. That's what she deserves. She deserves somebody that's going to lead, protect, and provide for her the way Christ leads, protects, and provides for the church. Uh, I don't bemoan this. I want for my kids to believe the gospel. I want them to reject the idea that being cool is everything. 
I want them to turn away from their sin and turn to Christ. And, and I don't care what else they do, as long as their, their career, what they achieve in life. They, they can mess a lot of things up. But if they are believing the gospel, we can deal with all those other things. And that's what I want. And I need you looking in on my life, making sure those things are going on in my family. I don't bemoan that. That's a gift in light of what God has called me to do. And here's the thing. Many a church will pull dad away from family and then wonder why their family's a mess. I've seen it happen over and over. The demands of church life, the demands of ministry, and a church that does not care about their pastor's family does not care about their church. You are committed to my family to see these things happen, holding me accountable, making sure these things are evident in my family. I've also seen churches walk around to the pastor's family with a clipboard. Ah, that kid knocked over some coffee at the table. That kid shot an arrow through a trash can at school this week. He's in in-school suspension. That happened in my family. <laughs> it was in archery class. It's humorous now. It wasn't so humorous when I got the call. We're a family of eight. We're a family of eight. You will find plenty of flaws if you want to. You will. And I'm asking for a little bit of grace. <laughs> and I'm also asking for a partnership. I want my family to reflect the gospel more than anything else. I want that, and I want you to pray that that's true. I want to ask you today, will you pray for my marriage every single day? As you think about Ashlyn, will you pray for my marriage? And will you pray for my kids to believe the gospel of Jesus Christ? As you think about me, my personality, what you like and don't like in the sermons, will you just stop and go, God, give him a marriage that reflects the gospel. Give him kids that believe the gospel. Notice, we continue in the text, for an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. He, he emphasizes this again. He is entrusted with the responsibility to shepherd the word of God. And so he has to be without accusation and he has to be blameless above reproach in all things. And then he gives a list. Now, this isn't a checklist, but this is his overall character. Does, he, does his overall character resemble these things? Notice, he must not be arrogant. The word, the word here is overbearing, and it means he must not be self-serving. He must not have a quick temper. He must not be short-fused. And so when he gets in the truck this morning to drive to church and his nice industrial broom was left right behind his back tire in the driveway... And he runs over that broom. What is the first thing he does with that broomstick? <laughs> does he just set it down and calmly get back in the car and drive to church? Or is he short-fused? I did the right thing this morning. <laughs> 
or a drunkard? Is he controlled by alcohol or by the Spirit of God? Is he violent? The word means a striker. Does he get into fights? Is he abusive? Is he greedy for gain? Is that why he's in the ministry? Is it just just for the money? Is he a ladder climber trying to gain money, trying to gain popularity? But hospitable, does he open up his home to outsiders? Is he approachable? Is he a lover of good? That means committed to the good of others. Is he self-controlled, not, not impulsive, but he can rein his emotions in, his desires in? Is he upright, which means, the word means to walk straight. He can walk with his head up before God. Because he has confidence in the word of God. He's not fallen. Is he holy? Is his life set apart under the authority of Christ and disciplined? Is he practicing godliness, training in godliness, working and growing to submit to Jesus? This is a list of his character qualities. Does he resemble these things? Is he a man controlled by the gospel or his own will, his own emotion, his own desires? Is he in ministry for God or for himself? Is it that he just wants a name for himself, a reputation for himself? Does he love power? A lot of guys get in ministry and they're good leaders and they just love leading. And they say the church is an easy place to lead people. That's where I'll lead. I can rise to the top real quick there. Is that why he's in ministry? Is he being removed from the ball games for throwing temper tantrums? Or does he control his emotions? What would his kids say about his emotions? What would his kids say about these things? What would his wife say about these things? Is he able to control his desires or is he addicted, not just to alcohol, but anything else? Is he addicted to things? Is there restraint from pleasure, the pleasures that you see in the world? Is he able to restrain from those things? Does he sacrifice and suffer first and foremost because the gospel is his greatest treasure? And is he growing in holiness? I can't be the same idiot I was five years ago. And if I am, you've got to fire me because I'm preaching things to you that I'm not applying to myself. But is he growing in godliness before God, controlling his emotions, controlling his desires? You know how hard it is to go through these things in front of you? It's hard. It's difficult. Even if I, as I read them, I know you're not thinking about you right now. You're thinking about everything I've ever done or said to you. And yet that accountability is what you need to be effective in ministry because notice the text continues, he must hold firm the trustworthy word as taught, which means the gospel, the promise of the gospel must be where he is clinging, where his grip is, that his life in ministry is latched to the word that he preaches. You look in on, on who he is, the gospel that has his life, it is the gospel that is, that is his all. Notice the trustworthy word, the word full of belief. It is reliable. It deserves belief. Word, this promise. Notice he clings to the word so that he is able to give instruction in sound doctrine. He is able to instruct, which means to confront, rebuke, or correct in sound doctrine. Beliefs that make you whole. 
that redeem you, beliefs that are rooted in the gospel that make us right before God. And notice also, rebuke those who contradicted. He is to hold to the gospel. He is to preach the gospel. And he is to rebuke those who contradict the gospel in the church and in the culture. And I want to stop right there and say, we believe that you should have a team of pastors that serve under the authority of the church. And we will call and hire pastors to do that here. And this has to be a requirement for them. See, in a lot of churches, you call men pastors who are just good managers. They're just good leaders, but they can't teach the Word of God. They don't preach the Word of God. This isn't just a team of good guys who have power and influence in the church. No, it is men who are instructing in the gospel, who are leading in the gospel. And I want to say very, very clearly, if he can't preach his own sermons, he's disqualified here. I have no clue where this trend is coming from in the life of the church. As churches grow and they become big, pastors are setting aside the responsibility of preaching their own sermons. They download their own sermons and they read them. That's not a pastor, that's a CEO. You want a man of God who's been in the Word of God all week and he's given his life over to that and the Word of God is coming to you through your pastor, not a manuscript that you could download offline yourself. And that's what we're going to do here. And any man we call pastor must be able to do that. Not that he's just good with the finances, but he can teach and preach the Word of God. And if he can't, we will tell him he can't. A lot of guys say they're called in the ministry and they can't preach. And we say, hey, you can do a lot of other things in the church and maybe some church will pay you to do that. They need that help. But you're not a pastor because you've got to know the Word of God and you've got to be able to counsel. You've got to be able to lead with the Word of God. You've got to be equipped in that way. Notice the text continues. Why is this? Why does he cling to the gospel? For there are many who are insubordinate. They are rebellious. They are not controlled. The text says they are empty talkers and deceivers. Their words hold nothing. Their, their, what they, their message has nothing in it. And they are deceivers because they take a little truth and they mix it with error and they deliver it. And it's unhealthy. It's unsound for the church. And he says, especially those of the circumcision party, those who are teaching Jesus plus circumcision to be saved. In Crete, they must be silenced. Meaning, the word here means their tongue must be stopped. And in ancient times when there was a false teacher, what they did is they pulled his tongue out of his mouth. They cut it off. It's the same imagery here since they are upsetting whole families. You have families who are believing the gospel and these teachers come into these houses where churches usually met and they're teaching a false gospel. Why are they doing it? For shameful gain. They're in it for the money. And they're teaching what they ought not teach. And then verse 12, one of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. 
And he says, this is true, therefore you have to rebuke them sharply. You have to confront them sharply that they may be sound in faith, not devoting themselves again to Jewish myths and commands of people who turn away from the truth. And so Paul here says, Timothy, I want you to know that as you hold to the gospel, there are people preaching a different gospel. They're saying, you can come to Jesus, but let's add a bunch of other stuff to it. And the gospel is Jesus plus nothing is everything. It's got to be all about Jesus. Jesus plus anything is nothing. This is all about the glory of Christ on the cross, achieving what we could not achieve. He is sufficient, and we don't add anything to His work. We simply trust in Him, and we hold to Him. But He says, in the culture, there are folks teaching something different. Their words are empty, and they need to be muzzled. And He says, if you're going to be a pastor, if you're going to be a shepherd, you've got to be willing to take the rod, and you've got to lead with it. And you've got to defend off the wolf sometimes. Sometimes you have to hit them in the face with the staff and knock their teeth out. And that's why a pastor has to be bold and courageous. Not so concerned what everybody thinks about everything that he says. And willing to preach the truth first and foremost and let the chips fall where they may. Bold and courageous, protecting the gospel in light. Here even, he even describes the, the Cretan culture. He says they're liars and they're evil beasts and lazy gluttons. That's the, the, the pastor who stands before God and is to be set apart from the culture. That's the culture he lives in. A wicked, perverse culture. And what is what the culture needs is not tradition and law, but they need the gospel. Because notice what he continues with, to be pure, all things are pure. And his point here in verse 15 is not just the outside. Because you can teach that, yeah, believe Jesus and then be circumcised and then go to the Jewish uh, festivals and then adhere to being all that a Jew would be from the outside in. He says, no, you've got to be all pure from the inside out. And he says, but the defiled and unbelieving, to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their minds and conscience are defiled. And he says, Timothy, or Titus, I'm sure I said Timothy all through this sermon. Uh, we can edit that out. But um, Titus, as you preach in this culture, you're not just tacking on goodness on the lives of people. You're not just telling them, do this, do this, and their hearts are wicked. Their hearts are perverse. No, you're taking the gospel and you're addressing their heart so that they believe in Jesus with their heart so that their conscience is pure by the cross of Christ. And if you're just tacking things on to their life, they're dressing up, they look pretty, but on the inside they are defiled. Just what Jesus said to the Pharisees, that they look good on the outside. They're like a really nice, expensive coffin. But on the inside, they're dead. Their bones rotting away. You say, you can do that. It won't change the culture. And it's dangerous for the church. Because they, notice verse 16, they profess to know God, but they deny Him with their works. They're detestable, disobedient, and unfit for any good work. And the scary thing is, you can have those people in the church 
What we so often do in our culture is we take the lowest common denominator. We look at the culture, we look at our country, and we say, what does it mean to be good in America? Well, it means your family looks this way. It means you support these values. It means you do these things and you stand for these things. And what we do is we take that and then we tack Jesus onto it. And we're not doing anything with the hearts of people. We're putting band-aids on the chest of people who need heart surgery. And we're expecting them to live. It's not going to happen. He says you've got to take the gospel, preach the gospel, call them with all of their lives, with all of their hearts to believe in Jesus who's done it all. They have no righteousness in and of themselves. And you can't cover that up with anything. You, you can't in the context of the church say to be a Christian means you pray a prayer, you go through these motions, you join these programs, you do these things. You can do so much around here that you just tack onto your life that you look good to everyone around you, but you're not a Christian and you're going to hell. That's so easy to do in the context of the church. That's why he's telling Titus, don't forsake the gospel. Don't just preach cultural norms. Address the culture with the gospel because on the inside, every culture is detestable. Every culture is wicked. And left to themselves, they are headed to hell. And the scary thing is, in the life of the church, so often, remember this is in the context of leadership. So often people come into the church and they're just good leaders. They're just good guys. And we give them tons of responsibility. And then we wonder later on why they are committed to such worldly principles in the life of the church. We wonder why they dishonor the gospel in their lives and in their family and in the way they talk in business meetings. We wonder, where does that come from? Are they reading their Bibles? Well, they're not Christians. They never believed the gospel. And they ruin and they split and they destroy churches. And that's why at the end of this passage, all of this comes back to leadership. All of this has to be applied to your leaders, to your pastors, to your deacons. And the scary thing is, if I try to be all of these things just to fit a job description, I'll go to hell. I could tack so much of this passage just onto my life and it not be about Jesus and go to hell, Pastor Jeremy. That's scary. You know, every week, mostly, Glenn's mother say to me, man, you just kicked me in the gut today with that sermon. You just stepped all over my toes. You just, you just punched me in the face. I get that. And I always say, you know, remember the gospel, okay? I did talk about Jesus, too. I did talk about sin, wickedness in our hearts, but but but. And don't forget Jesus. Let's always go back to Jesus. And hopefully you do that week after week. Don't get stuck on sin. It doesn't honor Jesus to live and wallow in sin. That minimizes the gospel. Always run to Jesus. Always run to grace. Always run to mercy. And it's the work of Satan so often to keep you there. I've had to remind myself of that this week. 
Because there's nothing in this passage that I say, I got that down. I'm on top of that. I'm not tempted in that way in the least bit. Nothing. Like there, there were times this week that I would read words and I couldn't get to the next one. Because I was thinking about my life and thinking, good grief, you're awful. You need to reside on Sunday. And then the arrow thing, I said, hey, I need to resign on Sunday. We joke around about that. It's funny. I still love you. <laughs> but none of these things am I inherently. There's all kinds of accusations that you could bring in my marriage. I fail as a parent on a regular basis. I know before God I am void of the righteousness that I need for eternity. I know that. I deserve hell. And too often I would honestly preach something, would rather preach something that made me more popular with you on a Sunday morning. That's where I've lived this week. I've punched myself in the gut with the Word of God over and over. Brought at several points just to just despair. And then I thought about this. If I, I could try to accomplish all of these things instead of being these things. In that moment, I, I got I to gotta do this. And God's saying, no, this is who you're supposed to be. This isn't something you're trying to tack on to your life because I, I know how easy it is where pastoral ministry is just about skill. Making the right phone calls at the right time, showing up to the places at the right time, saying the right words at the right time. You could be a good pastor and go to hell. You realize that? You'd be, I could be good at this job and you like me and I go to hell. From the outside in, it could look like I have a good marriage and I go to hell. I'm not going to heaven by my job title. And, and so often pastors cover up the sins of their family. Their kids are trying to meet a job description and they lose them. They lose them because they don't really care about them believing the gospel. They care about their job and ministry more than they care about their kids. Pray that's never so with me. You can get preaching down to a science where you just get used to putting the outlines together and going through the motions. I can cover up a lot of stuff, and that scared me to death this week. But a pastor realizes first... And foremost, before God, he's a Christian and nothing else. I'm not going to heaven because of what I do. I'm going to heaven because of Christ. Pastor realizes first, before God, he's a Christian. There are qualifications and there are requirements before God that I must live up to. But before God, first and foremost, I'm a Christian who believes the gospel. And any pastor that we bring into this spot, that's what they must be clinging to. They're not in this for the money. There's not a lot of money here, but uh, they're, they're not in it for the money. They're not in it for the power. They're not in it for the name. They're not in it for the reputation. No, they love the gospel because it's the gospel that saved their soul. So many times this week, I just stopped and wept. This was like reading the Ten Commandments and just, gosh, so far away from that. 
And if God were holding me to that standard, I would bust hell wide open. If that's what it took to be saved from my sins and to get into heaven, I'm doomed and damned. And And any sort of flicker of this that you see in my life is God's grace and mercy. Jesus died for my sins. He died for my failures as a husband, as a parent, as a pastor. It amazes me. I'm so thankful for it. And that's why this one phrase in this passage where it says, He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught. If there ever comes a day where I'm not believing the gospel that I'm preaching to you, where I don't walk around with some sort of confidence that Jesus died for my sins, hope, where I'm not despairing, and you look into my life and say, you've forgotten the gospel, you've become distracted, and you've forgotten the gospel. Remember the gospel, where I'm pushing the gospel away and what I see and what I do and how I think, then you need to get rid of me. As the words of a Puritan pastor I've also hit home this week when he writes this. This is Richard Baxter. Hear these words as we close. Many have warned others that they come not to that place of torment while they hasten to it themselves. Many a preacher is now in hell who had hundreds of times called upon his hearers to escape it. Can any reasonable man imagine that God should save men for offering salvation to others while they refuse it themselves? Many a tailor goes in rags that maketh costly clothes for others. Believe it, brethren. God never saved any man for being a preacher, nor because he was an able preacher but because he was justified, sanctified, and consequently faithful in his master's work. Take heed, therefore, to yourselves first, that you be that which you persuade others to be, and heartily entertain that Savior whom you offer to them. Oh, what aggravated misery is this, to perish in the midst of plenty, to famish with the bread of life in our hands, while we offer it to others. If such a wretched man would take my counsel, he would make a stand and call his heart and life into account and fall preaching to himself before he preached any more to others. I pray that I would be that man that would fall preaching to myself before I preached anything to you.